and welcome to episode 119 of the Meet the Farmers podcast. I'm your host, Ben Eagle, and this is the final episode of this current mini-series that I've been making with the Food Farming and Countryside Commission. Now, one thing we've seen uh, during the pandemic is the rise in interest in buying directly from farms, especially from farm shops, um, and an increasing number of producers have been working to retain as much value of their product as possible by supplying direct through box schemes, for example. Um, and today is all about this subject. Um, and I'm really pleased to be joined by three people who are very experienced when it comes to supplying direct uh, to customers in various ways. Peter Grieg is a partner at Piper's Farm in Devon. Peter and his team work with 25 other family farms and provide meat boxes and various other products direct to customers. Um, I'm also joined by John McCormick, who established Helen's Bay Organic Farm in County Down 30 years ago. Helen's Bay provides a variety of organic fruit and veg to customers across Belfast and County Down. And finally, Chen Wilson, who is the marketing coordinator for London-based Growing Communities, which is a community-led organization based in Hackney. They have an organic fruit and veg bag scheme and the Growing Communities Farmers Market, which aims to provide more secure and fairer markets for their farmers, growers and producers. Thank you to you all so much for coming on. I've been really excited for this one. Um, can you each give us some detail, first of all, on your businesses today and, and give us a, a brief timeline um, of how you got to where you are today? Uh, Peter, I'm going to start with you. Well, I guess it's good to do it um, chronologically. In 1987, Henry, my wife and I, had moved back to the small family farm that I had been brought up on in Kent. 40 acre farm when I was a kid, it was a mix of livestock, of, of cattle and sheep and pigs and laying hens. And it was where my mum and dad pioneered industrial poultry production. Okay. So in the early fifties, they'd been to the States, they brought back the idea of basically commercializing production of table chicken for everyday consumption rather than it having been a bit of a luxury that people ate very rarely. So when I was a young boy we had two sheds on the farm of 7,000 broilers in each shed. It took about 54 days to grow a four pound chicken. 1987 Henry and I went back to that small farm with a two-year-old and Will, our youngest son, just born. And I worked with my dad on that chicken unit. But by now, there was a 14,000 bird shed, a 28,000 and a 38,000 bird shed. He, so he was producing about half a million chickens a year on half an acre and they were going to a um, high street supermarket. Okay. But in working with those chickens, two things struck us. One, antibiotics were an essential ingredient to sustain the system. And Henry and I said, we're not doctors, but we think this is mad. Mm. We would not want to feed food to our young children or even to ourselves, which threatened the integrity of antibiotics, one of the greatest gifts mankind has ever been given. And the other thing, quite honestly, was I thought if the customers eating these chickens stood where I stood every morning, 
they would probably never eat chicken again in their lives. You know, the, the environment was not something that we would want our customers to see. So we said, as young farmers with young children, it is nuts. We're producing food we're not prepared to feed to our children, and we're doing it in a way we would not be prepared to show our customers. And so effectively, Piper's Farm was born. We determined to build a business to produce food, quite simply, we would want to feed to our children. The final critical thing was that when I was a kid, all of the neighbors were small family farms. And by the mid 1980s, they had all gone. Okay. And Henry and I said, this resource of the smaller scale family farm is an incredibly valuable resource. And we want to build a business producing food that we are so proud of and, and convinced that our customers would be happy to buy it. But we want to do it at the same time, nourishing and sustaining this structure of smaller scale family farms. By definition, we had to leave West Kent because they'd gone. We said, where will they still exist? And we identified the best farmland is where they most likely would still be. And then when Henry and I were at university, we saw the very beginnings of a digital world. The computers at uni were the size of a transit van. And if you wrote an essay, it was a stack of punch cards, you know, <laughs> a couple of foot high with holes in. And we thought, this is clunky, but there's no doubt this is not going to go away. And we envisaged that once there was a digitalized world, people would be able to live where they wanted to live and not all have to live in commuting distance of London. Okay. And so we said, where is the best land and where is that magical place that people will want to live? And very simplistically, we said a cathedral city has that sort of feel about it. There's a sort of uh, uh, just a, a magical quality. And so we said, where are there cathedral cities surrounded by grade one farmland? And there are four of them in the UK, Exeter, Worcester, Lincoln? York, oh, and York. Perth. Yeah, but Lincoln and Ely, I'm parking slightly because they're a, <laughs> a little bit colloquial, if I can be that. Yeah. I mean, that's dreadful because the, <laughs> the Bishop of, of Ely will feel really you know insulted and i, I don't say i know i i know we've got several several lincolnshire listeners as well so <laughs> I, I immediately eat humble pie and you know we needed to have quite a simplistic approach here because we we said okay and the other problem was henry and i both beyond being born south of watford although we'd farmed in wensleydale for six years when we were first married a high hill farm we were fundamentally from the South. And so we, we said, okay, Exeter and Worcester, we packed all of our belongings into a van and drove from Kent to a holiday cottage on Dartmoor. We spent six months of the winter of 1988 living in this holiday cottage. 
I started to teach myself to butcher in a, a little shed in the courtyard. We looked at 85 farms in six months and the property market was nuts. And yeah. we ended up here, magical place. There was almost nothing here. There were really tin sheds and a bungalow with no foundations. So, but it was a perfect place location-wise. We're in incredible rolling red Devon landscape, surrounded by an amazing farming community. We worked out exactly what Piper's farm would stand for so we did all the farming we worked out the breed of cattle the age what we fed them and the pigs and the sheep everything how long we'd hang them so I taught myself with a frying pan really and a continental style of butchery so that muscle by muscle we could put it in the pan and work out what we did on the farm what difference it made to the eating sensation and that defined the sort of beginning of the journey 30 years on thankfully will our younger son is now running the business he moved all of the processing off the farm here three years ago to a dedicated um, cutting plant in exeter he outgrew that within 15 months and so now the business has the processing unit in Exeter, a fulfillment centre in Columpton, which does all of the dispatch. So now they dispatch about 400 orders a day from their nationwide delivery to private retail customers all over the country. Okay. And the pipeline of supply has, as you said earlier, Ben, it, it, it now probably goes over, it's probably to mid-30s okay. of family farms who are feeding into that supply chain. And so, yeah, that's where we're at now. Brilliant. Let's head to London. Um, and Chen, can you tell us, uh, tell us briefly tell us the story of, of growing communities? We haven't got such an amazing story of transformation as Peter. It's really interesting to hear that because we, we started, we're a social enterprise in East London, as you said, we started um, 25 years ago with a vision to build a fairer and more sustainable food system that put people and planet before profit. And that's still exactly what we're doing 25 years later. So what, how we do that is we run, as you said, we run a, uh, fruit and veg scheme where we supply um, weekly veg boxes to about 1400 households in Hackney. We run a, uh, an all organic and we think the country's own only all organic farmers market, which again uh, serves about 1400 households a week. So we, we, we describe ourselves as feeding about 5000 people in Hackney okay. with good organic fresh food. We work with local farms. Uh, in, in the southeast and obviously further afield when we need to, times like now, the hungry gap. We also grow some food ourselves. We grow Hackney salad on our Hackney farm. We have a small farm in Dagenham in East London and we also train new growers. Uh, we've trained over 50 young people in how to grow food organically in, in, since we've run our training programme and we do our best to influence policy. 
we also, we decided we didn't want to expand hugely. What we wanted to do was create a network of better food traders like us. Yeah. So we set up the Better Food Traders Network, which is now a national network of farmer-focused veg schemes using the same model as us. So all of those support farmers who are local to them, offering the farmers fair prices for what they grow and offering customers a really good range of agroecological, seasonal, fresh food. We also set up a wholesaler, a small-scale wholesaler, um, that's that's you know runs on the same principles as everything else we do. It's ethical. It's small. It pulls the orders of the London Better Food Traders, and it uh, sends those to the local farmers throughout the southeast. So that way, they only have to deliver to one hub in East London rather than making the journey across mm. the ten different veg schemes. So so that was only set up last year. And, and is going really well. The Better Food Traders is a network now that has uh, over 30 members from, from being launched at the Oxford Real Farming Conference a year ago when it had 10 founder members. So it's, it's going really well. Yeah. I mean, to, get, to go back to the, the history, it all started with a, when our director Julie set up a CSA scheme working with one farm uh, in Buckinghamshire okay. about 30 years ago now. But after a few years, she realised that she wanted to be able to supply a weekly bag and we couldn't do that working with one farm. So we decided to expand it out and buy some food from wholesalers and some food from other farms. So we're now supplied by about 20 to 30 different farms and wholesalers throughout throughout the year. Interesting. And finally, let's head over the RSC um, to John over at Helen's Bay. Um, can you tell us a bit about your story? Um, well, I started Helensbury Organic Gardens uh, 30 years ago in 1991. Uh, it was then just one acre of uh, heavy clay on the shores of Belfast Lock, um, doing a home delivery service. In other words, just knowing I, my children went to local Steiner school, a lot of the parents were interested. So I was going around just delivering, just selling vegetables out of the back of the van. And then over the last 30 years, we've... Um, moved on from that we developed a box scheme we took a stall in st george's market in belfast and we um, started up a farm shop and so and we've increased to seven acres of mixed vegetables outdoors and fifteen thousand square feet of polyfunnels we employ nine people equivalent to six full-time jobs plus okay. myself uh, we've increased the box scheme which is represents 80 percent of the business to about 450 customers a week and we have about 100, 150 people coming through the um, farm shop. Uh, St. George's has been closed recently, but mm. we were also 60, 70 people in St. George's. So, um, yeah, so over 30 years, it's grown into um, a reasonably sized business. Yeah. And John, you, you alluded there to the last 12 months, and, and I want to focus in on, on lockdown. Um, you hear, I mean, lots of Every, everyone has their own story um, from uh, COVID, but I'm interested in, in, in your specific businesses at the moment. Um, what has been the impact of lockdown and COVID on your business and, and, and on meat and veg boxes businesses generally from, from what the conversations you've been having? Um, Chen, can we start with you? Uh, impact of, of lockdown? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, the, in the earliest days of the pandemic, our orders went up about 20% in a fortnight. 
many of those were existing veg scheme members who wanted a bigger bag. You know, they okay. knew they weren't going to be eating out. They knew they were going to struggle to to get food from other sources and to to get deliveries from supermarkets. So so yeah, so it went up about twenty percent. So um, well, we grappled with the challenges of the pandemic ourselves, and some people working from home. But some of the other better food traders saw their business double in the space of that yeah. first month of COVID. I mean, now our numbers have settled down again. Um, I think there's been a huge increase in other people offering veg schemes. Obviously, farmers mm. who've started to sell direct, wholesalers who used to supply restaurants and catering and who pivoted then to offering veg box schemes. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen now that the restaurants are reopening, whether people will decide that direct selling is, is what they would prefer to do because their margins are better. Mm. Um or whether they will go back to doing doing what they used to do, what their, their old speciality. So yeah, yeah, interesting to see. Absolutely, um, John. Have you seen a similar story? Yeah, we grew about sixty percent in the course of the last year. Um, wow. Mostly on box scheme. Uh, St George's was closed, but that more than more than made up for it. Um, we're not expecting it to stay like that. Uh, we had a similar situation in Northern Ireland. Lots of people started up small box schemes and um, wholesalers and such like. Um, but there's not many organic producers. So we've kind of got a niche in the market here in Belfast. Okay. Organic producers. So we're, we've got loyal business. We've got a lot of loyal customers. So we made hay while the sun shines. <laughs> no, no cloud without some silver lining. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm not expecting it. I'm not expecting it to to last. Um, okay. You know, I expect my my business might shrink a little bit again. Yeah. And Peter, obviously, you're you're providing uh, boxes uh, nationally. Um, have you seen similar similar such growth? Yes, I think uh, that first week when the initial lockdown started, suddenly it was like Christmas had arrived with <laughs> 48 hours notice, and normally yeah. Christmas something we spend nine months planning for so there's no doubt that was a really challenging uh, moment and it's interesting with the digital platform you see stuff well we don't it's the younger generation who really get the tech they were watching the numbers and seeing what was happening and it was just incredible it was like a tsunami of orders coming towards them they quickly realized they had to, as Jen said, shut everything down and get control of it, which did take two or three days. Then there was a long waiting list of people who wanted to order. And we just simply had to say no new customers for a while. And I think that was running to thousands of people on that waiting list. And I think crucially what's now happened, as Jen and John have said, Things have settled down, but I think for us, we were fortunate that the business was generally on a trajectory of significant growth before the pandemic. Okay. And that growth had been unlocked by us becoming very focused. So we have had a high street shop in Exeter for 23 years. We shut that four years ago. We stopped supplying hospitality two years ago because we could see that it was essential for the business to scale. We were very focused in our, our strategy, in our deployment of resources. And 
thankfully, that meant we were well placed to absorb the huge shock of the sort of pandemic impact. Yeah. 12 months on, it's very interesting to start to scrutinize the data and see how well we're managing to retain that surge of customers. And that's a, a really interesting exercise we're engaged in right now. Yeah, I mean, let's, let's actually think about that and where you're all going from here. How on earth do you plan the what next? Um, uh, Chen, from, from your point of view, um, what, what, what is your best guess as where we're going to go next? Well, I think there's there's been a fantastic amount of uh, of growth in this market, which has gone on for a long time. You know, when we started the the CSA scheme in in London thirty years ago, it was London's first CSA scheme. I mean, no one had heard of any such thing. Yeah. Now there are hundreds of CSA schemes, hundreds of veg schemes. Uh, hundreds of farmers markets you know there's been a, an incredible amount of growth not just over the past year but consistently before that I mean I think the Soil Association uh, organic market report said there was a growth of over a third yeah. just last year but that was the 10th year of growth we've seen growth throughout our 25 years um, every single year whether there's been a recession or uh, whatever has been going on in the wider world so I think it's 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 a people want to be connected to their food. People um, are starting to recognize that their main free, the mainstream food system just isn't working. It's wasteful, it's polluting, it's carbon intensive. People want that connection, they want the community, they want to understand where their food comes from. And I think that there's been an increasing understanding of that over the past year. And I really hope that will continue, that people will continue to want localized food and connection with the with where where it comes from let's talk about benefits there are perhaps some more obvious ones um but what for you are the benefits of being close to your customers and, and obviously your businesses have, have, have adapted and changed um over time um so that there might you might have seen differences um at, at different stages in, in in your business's history um peter can i start with you on that one i think one of the great uh, values of having had a bricks and mortar shop for 23 years. I wasn't in there all the time, but I used to love being in there. And then you would physically interact with your customers, just as Jen and John do on a much greater extent um, anyway. But for us, that was a chance to really understand who our customers were. One of the most telling things about that learning process was that our customers definitely do not necessarily have a lot of money but they are smart enough to have worked out how to get value for their shopping budget yep and so even if they came in and and bought a chicken carcass to make a broth to feed their family and they put a lot of vegetables into it that's smart shopping and I think that defines our customers. We believe there is a rapidly growing number of people who are learning that skill. It's about value, it's not about price. And so although when we started Piper's Farm, one of our, and possibly the main objective was to produce food that gave people pleasure when they ate it, because we said, that's timeless, that's not a fashion. 
that's not going to melt away at any moment. If you can give people eating pleasure, that is an essential ingredient. But increasingly, there is a huge number of people who are making this direct connection between what they put into their body and its impact on their health, yeah. their physical, their mental health, and everything in between. And therefore, that likewise, it's not a fashion that's going to grow and grow. And so we see delivering into that market with those two characteristics is going to be enormous. There's an enormous opportunity, massive growth. And just very briefly to say that our vision would link that to the smaller scale family farms as the supply chain, because those people absolutely definitely are really interested to know how that food has been produced. Mm. And the people, it's the people, it's the families who are part of a, a functional rural community, they really matter. And our customers get that, I think. Yeah. I mean, Chen, would, would you go along with that? And what, what are your customers interested in? Oh, well, our customers absolutely are interested in, in uh, sourcing food that has been grown and produced ethically, knowing that the farmers are getting a fair price for that food. They're the top, top reasons that people want to be on our veg scheme. I mean, anything that brings the people that eat food in closer connection with the people that grow the food has to be a good thing. I mean, the farmers that come to our farmer's market really love meeting the people that eat the food. They know that they're incredibly hard work and high standards. They're recognised and appreciated. They can have a conversation about how an animal was reared or how a vegetable was grown, how to eat it, how to get, to get the best value out of it, to make it last, to use those carrot tops, to make something with your cauliflower stalks, not to not to throw away those the bits of food that you might otherwise have thrown away. I think it it helps the people eating the food to to you know to accept, to forgive, even to learn to love their, their knobbly, bendy, yeah. blemished, you know, wonky veg and to appreciate that they're just as good. In fact, they're better because they're stopping food waste on farms. So it's a really, really good thing. As we've just completed some research with the uh, think tank, the New Economics Foundation and the Soil Association, where we looked at all the benefits that come from buying food from uh uh, a veg scheme like ours and okay. it was absolutely astonishing I mean it said that the conclusion was that for every one pound spent buying food from growing communities the scheme generates three pounds seventy of value wow so that's social value mostly for the people eating the food so it's better health less food waste uh, greater sense of community um, but also for the farmers having a sense of connection, feeling appreciated. It can be a very lonely job growing food, you know, so to know that Absolutely. it's that it's been appreciated is actually makes the difference to know that they've got a regular income. That's the great thing about veg schemes is that you know what your orders are going to be. You can plan, you can plant a field of leeks and know that it will be bought, you know, rather than the mainstream food system that might turn around and go, no, leeks are out of fashion. We, we, we said we'd buy them, but we're not going to. That doesn't happen with us. You know, we buy what's there. We buy what's ready. And if the leeks aren't ready for a couple of weeks, we'll buy the celeriac instead or whatever else is, is ready in the field. So it's a much safer life 
for farmers and and uh, they can pay fair wages. I mean, a lot of, you know, there's nobody is um, depending on migrant labor. They've got, you know, workers who have decent, decent living and, of, you know, mixed farms are also great because there's a variety of work. You're not doing a mindless, repetitive job week in, week out. You're doing really valuable and varied work. So there's numerous benefits from it. Hmm. We spoke about um, affordability in, in the last episode with um, with Rosie and Simon, but I, w- I want to return to that um, a bit now. Um, there might be a perception um, that it's more expensive um, to buy through box schemes, for example. Um, is this always the case? And, and if not, how do you break that stigma? Um, John, do you think there's that perception? I do. I do. And I think it's a misunderstanding. I think um, the reality is we can no longer continue not to cost in the externalities of our food production. In other words, the, the agriculture is failing the environment very, very seriously with massive species extinction and depletion of our soils and our contribution to climate change, we just cannot not cost that into the production of food. Yeah, uh, I think that's the first thing. Organic agriculture at least attempts to try and um, embrace uh, the solutions to some of those problems, and it has to be costed into the food. So that's the first thing. The second thing with regards to affordability, I think it's, that is really important, is that it's not a question that food has to be cheaper. Are we going to just make farmers really poor so poor people can eat our food? I mean, this is nonsense. Um, we are the seventh, well, seventh or eighth, we are one of the seven wealthiest nations in the world. And yet we continue to have a significant number of people within our population who cannot afford good food. And it's not purely an economic thing, it's also an educational thing. So that leads me back to, uh, I think it's policy decisions by the government are really, really important um, because that's the only thing that's going to make a serious dent and change in those issues. Uh, And as regards to uh, what we as producers can do, I've always been very impressed with, there are three websites I follow, Riverford Organic, uh, Tallhurst Organic, both in England, and Full Belly Farm in California. And I just watch what these guys do. Um, I know all three of them. (laughs) And I watch what these guys do. And um, we try to do the same in a much more modest basis. You know, on your farm shop and in your uh, market stall, yes, you can have a personal relationship because um, uh, you're meeting people. At least somebody within my business is meeting people face to face. Quite often it's me, quite often it's other people. and uh, but on the box game you're not and so you you really do have to engage with the box game you know your driver even with COVID now wasn't even knocking on doors just leaving it at the door not collecting the nets you know we don't use boxes we use nets they're more environmentally friendly and so you're not meeting your customers so it's we've started to do our own videos and newsletters which are very modest and putting them you know on YouTube so we can then share them with our customers and uh, that's that's how we engage and talk about the issues like what I've just been saying the last two or three minutes. Chen, your thoughts? I totally agree that we, we're, we're not paying the true costs of food. I mean, the, the, the same report that said, you know, that we're generating more than three pounds of value selling our way. If you look at the search from the same sustainable food trust, 
it, it reckons that for every pound spent on, you know, cheap mainstream food, there is another pound of costs that should have been factored in. You know, it, it, we touched on all these. John mentioned, you know, antibiotic resistance and soil and water and pollution and uh, use of fossil fuels, you know, industrial production. Uh, pesticides, there's no biodiversity, you know, if we took all those into account, then, then all food ought to be more expensive. And, and that's a difficult thing to say when people can't afford food. Mm. So it's not just that the food system is broken, it's that the, the benefit system is broken and the wages system is broken. We should all have enough money that we can afford to buy food. At, the, at what it actually costs to produce it so that farmers aren't being driven out of business and everyone is able to eat well and maybe that's a universal basic income there has to be a recognition you know people talk about food poverty it's not food poverty it's poverty and and food poverty implies that food needs to be cheaper which it absolutely doesn't if we're going to look after this planet and stop climate change going completely destroying destroying us then you know we have to be more realistic about that. Mm. That that point about about food poverty is, is a really clear one, and it's, it's one of the key conclusions I think that ha that's come out of this mini series from from everyone who's been talking is that it's not up to the food system, and it's certainly not up to food producers um, to solve food poverty. This is this is a much much broader issue. Peter, Peter, I just want to hear your your thoughts quickly on, on the affordability question. Well, I totally agree with John and Chen about this issue of full cost accounting. You know, the true cost of what appears cheap food at point of sale would mean that actually it isn't cheap at all. But the other point I think that strikes me is it the digitalized world gives us an immense opportunity to overcome a lot of the problems of accessibility. So I think the supermarket model has exploded over the last 30 years because fu fundamentally it delivers a convenient point of access for complete trolleys of, of food and other goods. So we now see ourselves effectively as a tech platform which gives extremely convenient access for people ordering off their phone for delivery the following day if they want but those small artisan scale producers of all sorts of food and, and those family farms are able to be linked into that incredibly convenient digital system so that people no longer need to think, well, I'd love to buy food that's really good value and really good healthy food and I'm supporting the people I want to support, but it's, always been so difficult there have been hurdles now genuinely i think that food those producers can be connected through a system which is possibly more convenient than shopping from a supermarket so that's a really exciting way in which the the market's evolving now mm. let's just finish by focusing on on any growers or farmers out there who who might be interested in and doing more of the kinds of things that, that you're doing, um, either through a, a scheme such as um, Peter's or Chen's, um, or, or, or perhaps uh, selling direct um, themselves, what advice would you give to them, John? Before I answer that, I, I, I just wanted to say one thing. I really believe that in order to move forward, 
uh, whether it's with new farmers or not, uh, to move forward is that we have somehow got to, as a society, uh, to reclaim what I call the commons, the air we breathe, the water we drink, and the soil from which we feed from. Um, we, we really need regulation and rules, policy decisions around, uh, around the commons, so that no individual has the right to pollute those and destroy them just for their own personal gain and benefit. And so really anybody coming into agriculture should embrace that and should embrace that in a whole variety of different ways, both in what they are practically doing themselves as well as how they cast their vote. Um, I believe there is huge opportunity, huge opportunity to produce quality food that has actually got some of the solutions to the enormous problems that we face, very real problems of mass human extinction if we don't. That's the reality. And that sounds alarming, but it's true. Uh, and I'm saying that as a grandfather of nine children. I want them to have a good quality of life and security. And, and I fear for them. I seriously fear that they will not have that if we don't start to seriously address some of these problems. And so that's the challenge to people coming in. The blueprints are there to how to enable you to, to succeed, whether you're a big arable farmer turning organic to, in order to meet some of those solutions and, uh, and make a better quality of life for yourself and something much more interesting than following the, 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 the treadmill of the, of, the, of the chemical agricultural and industrial system. Um, so I just, I wish you every best wish in the world to, to, for success and stop fearing whether you can do it or can't do it. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> just embrace, embrace your fear and do it. And good luck to you. And there's loads of people out there. All these people I talked about, Full Belly Farm, Riverford Organic, yep. Tallhurst Organic, yep. Helensbury Organic Gardens, we're there to help you. Just ask us. Chen, some closing comments from you. Yes, I mean, I, I was going to say that producing food and selling it are two incredibly different skills. You know, not everyone has the time and the energy and the expertise to do both well. So, you know, for farmers who are really good at growing but are intimidated by the idea of selling themselves, then hook up with local veg schemes, hook up with the better food traders, yeah. find local farmer focused retailers who can do the selling and distribution for you, find ones who understand the seasons, who will buy what's ready in your fields for a fair price. I mean, in, in, with the better food traders model, you know, over 50% of the retail price goes to the farmer. That's not as much as if you sold direct, but a lot of the, yep. the, the bother of selling yep. it is taken out of your Absolutely. hands. And it is three to five times more than you will get by selling through big wholesalers and the supermarket and the mainstream system. So it's much, much fairer to farmers. And you will find people who will get the customers together for you. They will give you a guaranteed market throughout the year. And you can sit back and get on with what you're best at, which is growing really, really good nutritious sustainable food and peter i'll give you the final word well it feels an incredibly exciting time now ben i think that again coming back to this whole digitalized landscape we're in we feel that each farm each producer has a different set of resources and very very few of them really are best suited in trying to go direct to the market. 
so we believe in this chain of, of links, if you like, but every link in that chain is equally respected and valued. So our job is to achieve the, the best possible price at the point of sale and then feed that value back up to every link in the chain, enabling each party, if you like, to do what they do best. And we have a vision for a, a very vibrant, revitalized rural landscape with a lot of different enterprise. We want a lot of young blood to come into farming and into the rural space. And we want there to be a real return, if you like, to that multifaceted, rich tapestry of different activity going on around farmland and around food producing land. But it not only will bring together a lot of skills of, of woodsmen and of, of blacksmiths and so on, all of which products we would happily put onto the platform, but also it really should be part of a functional local community. The local doctor's surgery should work with the local food producing skills to say this interaction can be of huge benefit to people's mental health and social health and so on. So we see a very exciting future. We want mm. to invite people in, inspire them to come in, but the job of delivering across a digital platform is a real specialism and we've got a lot of t-shirts that say don't venture there <laughs> just sort of half-heartedly because it's mighty challenging it's bloody fast moving and yeah. thank god we've got the younger generation driving the end of it super we will leave it there that is all we have time for but a huge thank you to my guests today john mccormick chen wilson and peter greek that's it for this mini series as well and i want to thank the food farming countryside commission for the collaboration on this project and especially elliot Ketch, the lead food systems researcher for all the time that he's put in behind the scenes um, after a bit of a break while i catch up on other projects we'll be back to normal on the show um, but for now thank you for listening and i look forward to you joining me next time